Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Greenbelt Somewhere to Believe in podcast. In this series, a nun, a rabbi, a Muslim convert, a Lutheran firebrand, a humanist, an American liberation theologian, a retired Met police officer, and an LGBTQ priest all walk into a bar. You know what they say in polite circles? Don't talk about religion or politics. It's funny that, because at Greenbelt, that's what we like to talk about most. Perhaps that makes us impolite. Find out and join us for this series of no-holds-barred conversations with extraordinary people who are prepared to wear their hearts on their rolled-up sleeves, for whom faith isn't personal, who get stuck in because of what they believe. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good, good. Lockdown's yeah. kind of coming to an end, it feels like. It's, it's felt never-ending, though, hasn't it? I went to two restaurants last week two in one week yeah i yeah got a bit excited just set, just kept saying yes to everybody <laughs> and, you, and you actually sat inside restaurants rather than outside yeah sat inside yeah wow. and quite How normal did it feel? yeah amazing amazing it just <laughs> felt amazing to be inside eating food and being able to talk to friends i haven't spoke to in ages face to face it was brilliant those simple pleasures and you're yeah. just about to go away in your camper van for a little camping trip for the first time. Yeah, I'm coming out of this lockdown full force. I was going to say, you're using up all your cards like straight away. You need to keep some of that ammunition back. I've been dying to get out and about. Yeah, so I'm going on my first van trip this weekend for a couple of days away in Wales. Oh, brilliant. I mean, who would have believed it? This is where going into this is the beginning of series three of our podcast. And remembering back to last summer when we first started making a Greenbelt podcast and it was all new to us. And we were saying, oh, we're living in lockdown. We're living with the pandemic. And here we are living in lockdown, living with the pandemic a whole year later. It's weird. That's really crazy. Yeah. And how and how things like, you know, social distancing and even the term lockdown, none of those things would have been in our life you know, just over a year ago. Yeah, we've got a whole new vocabulary, haven't we? What sort of things have you learnt this year, Catherine, do you think? Have you learnt some new stuff? I mean, apart from knitting, obviously knitting. Yeah, I learnt knitting. Given up on that a little bit, though. That was... <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You know, I always try and look at the positives. So the positives are that it made me slow down a lot, which was really nice. But I think I've started... Pre- I know this is going to sound really terrible, but I've started appreciating the little things in life. Ah, oh, this is going to sound like a sort of philosophy self-help podcast, Catherine. Tell me more. What sort of little things? Uh, going to a restaurant and eating with friends. Some would describe that as a big thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I got to I got to explore a lot of my surroundings as well during lockdown, which was really nice. Got to appreciate a lot more of England than I've ever done before. Small pleasures, simple pleasures. But it's been hard, hasn't it? Did you did you find this last lockdown hard? I've grown really content to not doing anything, as in not going out or not expl- not meeting up with people. I've almost grown content with that, and my worry is that. Um, 
that I've sort of defaulted back into that sort of life where we're trying to finish building a house. So I've always got loads to do. My worry is now that I can go out and meet friends again, I, I need to learn how to make the effort and do that because I've almost forgotten how to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think lots of people will feel like that as well. I think definitely people will have different social anxieties or just like, yeah, worries about how to interact with people in that way because we just haven't really for so long. And anyway, how about this festival that we run? Who would have believed it? Hey, Catherine, like last summer, we took that early decision around Easter time 2020 to cancel the 2020 Greenbelt Festival. We, we really had no option. And, you know, such all festivals pretty much did exactly the same. We, we couldn't do anything other. But who could have imagined that we've had to do it for a second year in a row? Mm. Um, that, that was fairly... There was a period of weeks there, I don't know about for you, where it was it was almost agonising, you know, like the playing this waiting game. How long can we hold out? There's there's light at the end of the tunnel. Surely we should just hang on. Oh, no, we've got to cancel. It was really agonising. I remember, you know, because there was not a lot of clarity and there was so much guesswork around it, like how many people can we have on site? How far away do they have to stand from each other? Will we need to test people? Will people need to have a vaccine? Will... You know, do, would we be okay with that? Are we okay with even letting people into our festival? Will the roadmap come out as it will? Will there be insurance? Like, and having to plan around all those different scenarios. And we would have staff meetings where each one of us would change our mind about five times within that two hour staff meeting. And that went on for months. And I still see some of my friends in the festival business that are still going through that. And I just horrible and you know uh, you know as well as the actually you know the festival the finance the practicals um and all of the artists who we had lined up and booked all of those things that we were juggling and that were in place there of course is that huge sea of faces that we have in our mind's eye that is the green belt community the people who come to the festival year after year and they were very they were weighing in our minds and our hearts as well weren't they sort of like thinking oh come on we've got to hang on we've got to find a way of making this festival work because we can't we can't not do something again for a second year in a row i don't know did you feel that at all yeah i i felt like uh we had an obligation i felt like people what needed greenbelt to happen this year because it means so much for people and it gives people so much and I felt a huge obligation to to hold that really carefully and to try and make it happen if we could. That crossed with the should we even morally be inviting 10,000 people into a field together. So weighing up those two things is is a is a tricky tricky one to do. We didn't want to let go altogether of the of thinking about ways that we could gather or at least provide opportunity for people who wanted to gather together. So what have we done, Catherine? What have we done? We've uh, come up with a plan of doing two camping events, camping events with a little bit extra, um, for about 1,400 people a time. It's going to be three nights camping uh, in the lovely uh, grounds of Bowton House. And yeah, hopefully it'll just provide people the opportunity of just sitting with each other, seeing each other after so long of being away from each other. 
I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward You're to really it. You're really looking forward. You weren't you weren't that into it at the beginning, but you know, ever since working on it, you are now its biggest supporter. I am. I am. <laughs> I, I just think it will. I really do think. You know, we can't call it a festival. It's not a festival. There won't be back to back wall to wall programming. You won't need a guide or a daily diary or an app to navigate it at all. You'll need. A, there'll be a chalkboard. <laughs> there'll be a chalkboard. But I just think that I I really am convinced that that same spirit that sort of animates Greenbelt and brings people together, that gets strangers talking to each other, that that gets friendships forged, that, that gets people meeting up again after not seeing each other for a whole year and being really, really close and having deep conversations. All that's going to be there. And I think that's, that's brilliant. And the tiny tea tent. Tiny tea tent. Yeah. What more, what more do you need? So... Why have we chosen not to do a digital festival this summer, Paul? You, you only have to look at um, Glastonbury um, to realise that these things aren't all that straightforward. Obviously, we're, we wouldn't be doing things on nearly that sort of scale and complexity. But it's not a given. It's not entirely straightforward and simple and cheap to do digital content. In fact, last summer, we learned a whole load about how the fact you have to take just as much care in terms of booking artists, working with artists, how are you going to then produce that their work? Uh, how is that going to feel participative? How are people going to engage with that? All those sorts of considerations. How do you safeguard that? That was one of the difficulties. The safeguarding yeah. aspects. Yeah, we learnt loads. And it's it's not like we're just putting all that behind us and we'll never do that again. We always know now that digital needs to be part of, of the green the way we express ourselves at Greenbelt and it will be. It's just for this particular season we're going to adopt a different emphasis. I think what we ought to do is um introduce our first guest for uh, episode one of series three and he is Leroy Logan. And um what do people need to know about Leroy Logan at a headline level, Catherine? How can we, what can we say about him? Well, incredible person. So he was born in the 50s in Islington to Jamaican parents and was on track for a brilliant career in science and medicine, but then just felt a strong calling to join the police force much to the dismay of friends and family. Um, and he knew the kind of racism that existed in the police through his own experience, but just felt a strong calling to join them. And then just went on to have the most interesting and fascinating career that I don't want to give too much about because, you know, podcasts. And also, also he's just written a book which came out last year called Closing Ranks which everybody should try and read. He's sort of come into the public eye this year because um, the, the amazing film director, Steve McQueen, um, told his story in one of his small acts films that the BBC commissioned. Um, and the, um, the episode uh, that told Leroy Logan's story um, featured John Boyega in, in, the, um, in the lead role. It was an amazing, you know, we, we'll put links up to all of this, but it means that he's really broken through into the public consciousness a little bit more. And people think, Leroy Logan, oh yeah, yeah, John Boyega. Um, so it was a real thrill to, to talk to him while he's sort of like so in the news, as it were. The reason we're putting this episode out first is that of course we've just passed the year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd and that felt really important to see how he feels about all of that too change, 
So, Leroy, thanks so much for joining us here on the Greenbelt podcast. Where, where are we speaking to you today? Where's home for you? East London. Have you always lived in London? Have you always been a Londoner? Yeah, I uh, was born in Islington and uh, I went to school throughout um, my sort of formative age. Other than uh, a short time of a, a few years in Jamaica, a primary school age, but the rest of my uh, development was in Islington. I went to Highwood Grove School, which was a stone's throw from the Arsenal Stadium. So I'm a, a lifelong, long-suffering gooner. And um, I really, all my relatives and friends are in London. So, uh, yeah, I'm a Londoner. How have you... Um... How have you seen East London change over the past, you know, 10, 20 years living there? Well, we moved from Islington in 86 and, well, well, I can't believe that, it's 35 years ago. So we, to, to move into East London and uh, we've seen such amazing development, especially since the Olympic Games in 2012, uh, that sort of proliferation of that, Olympic site, and it's sort of rippled out. It, it's really given East London um, a stake. Uh, you know, it's put us on the map. Yeah, we we love East London. Uh, no intention of moving out. Could we perhaps dig into that little bit that you mentioned at a primary school age, where you and your family went back to Jamaica, and you spent um, two or three years, a few years there? Because um, that's from from reading about you, that seems to have been a very formative and important experience in, in your life at, at an early age. 100%. It was a masterclass in identity. Uh, I, I only went over to Jamaica for a short period. It was with my mother and my younger sister. And various things happened that it, it extended it somewhat. But it was, uh, for me, a chance to know the background of where my parents came from, who obviously came over in the 50s during the Windrush generation and it was good to know where they grew up and this the sense of discipline and order and a, a very strong Christian ethos in how you grew up, especially in school. They were extremely strong on that. So I, I got a real sense of who I was and where I came from and a lot of sort of African history. So... For me, it, it gave me a real foundation on which to build on. And, and so when I came back, I felt really, you know, comfortable in my own skin, which was really important for that sort of transition from primary school to secondary school. How old were you when you came back to the UK? Yeah, I, I was nine. And, and could you see that that experience gave you a different footing to maybe some other of your peers and other kids at nine that were around you at the time? Absolutely. I, I saw black teachers, black doctors, black nurses, black police officers. They all looked like me. And and I, I remember I used to tell my, my uh, student friends what I'd seen and they thought, really? Oh, you know, that's odd. <laughs> Because I didn't know any better, especially those who came, uh, who've got Jamaican parentage or uh, Caribbean parentage, 
they didn't seem to understand that you could that that could be possible and for me it gave me an advantage in the sense that if i saw it i could be it and and that was very clear for me and and of course i was so blessed with the parents i had to give me that self belief and encourage me and nurture me in a way that with hard graft and real understanding of who you are you could achieve your true potential and 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 of course knowing how faith was very important in our lives and um as a god-fearing family we we really pulled together we didn't have much but we valued what we had there's an interesting phrase that you use there Leroy and I, I wonder if it connects later on into your career in the police and you you use that phrase which is a phrase that when I was being brought up my grandparents would use with me a, a god-fearing and I think that you know when uh, when I've read about you the way that you would interpret that is is it right is to say it's about a respect rather than a a fear necessarily as in oh no I'm really scared it's it's that sort of honoring and respect and that that seems to be very important in your upbringing and obviously it's important within the the police as well that that sort of respect and a system of honoring and and duty I I I was very clear on knowing what was my anchor and my, my anchor was my faith I must admit it was so I've never been a person that carries my faith on my sleeve and no disrespect to people who do but I, 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 I've always felt that sense of you know I've got my guardian angels out there and so it then plays itself out in how you relate to people your family your friends the people you serve and, 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 and that was very clear clear to me the ethos in which I would have to take on policing because I saw police officers are peacemakers with sons and daughters of God we have to understand that we we do service respecting and valuing people we've got to be people 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 you know we've got to have that real love for people and it was a bit of a shock for me when I went into the policing they didn't have much love for each other much less love for, for the public sometimes in the sense of humor uh, you know, they, they would take the mickey out of your colour of your skin, your accent, your hair, your gender, whatever it may be. And they always used to say, um, you shouldn't have joined if you couldn't take a joke. So in, the, in that sense of taking jokes or making jokes, laughing at you, not with you, you just have to sort of suck it in and accept it. And, and that for me was really difficult to understand why... You are public servants, but you don't really love people. You don't really respect them in the way that they should. And that that was a, a real challenge for me. But I, I knew I had to be in it to make those changes and speak truth to power to ensure that people recognised importance of, as being public servants and what the community really want from us. So it, 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 that respect and reverence was the golden thread throughout my career. And Leroy, I read that you um, initially, your career, you were going to become a scientist. Did you come into policing 
kind of with rose-tinted glasses, thinking that everybody was going to come into it, looking at it like a public servant job or a servant for the people? Or did you come into it knowing that it needed to be changed? Well, no, no, I, I, I came into policing knowing it had to be changed because the fact my father was badly beaten up by police officers over a traffic matter while I was in the process of joining and how they reacted, how the police reacted to try and close ranks at the expense of truth and justice and my dad had to sue the Met to get um, you know, the truth to be told and him to be exonerated. But so when he got com- compensated and he was exonerated for excessive force and unlawful arrest, he, he that showed me how the police can react. And then I contrasted it with being in science and seeing a, a very positive environment, very open, very diverse. I, I knew it was going to be a massive culture shock for me. I knew it was going to be my worst nightmare. But if I could just push through, I knew I could get breakthroughs. I didn't know exactly how. I just had to trust in God. I just knew he, the timing was there for me to do something and it was making it clear. And that, that's why that calling was such um, a, a strong driving force for me to join. It was just, I couldn't ignore it. You know, I was questioning my sanity, thinking, is this God? Is this really you want me to leave science? You know, and, and I know that my dad wanted me to be a scientist and maybe go into medicine. And, and then I'm going to have to tell him that the officers who beat him up I'm going to join their ranks. So, and how am I going to tell him? And why would I say that to someone I love, who's my role model, my rock? My dad recognised that I wanted to to do this, and it wasn't more just it wasn't just a job because I already had a job. I already had a career path, so he could recognise that it was a calling. But I didn't feel alone. I didn't feel I was an outcast, even though I was getting a hard time for the community. They're saying, why would you join? You're a traitor, you're a Judas, etc." And then I was getting a hard time from my colleagues who didn't celebrate diversity. And in fact, they looked at me very suspiciously. They said, um, well, you look a bit dodgy. And, you know, why would you leave a sound job? You're 26. You know, are you some sort of undercover journalist or are you going to write a book or something? And, Actually, they're right because thirty odd years <laughs> later, I wrote a book. But um, it, yeah, so I was between a rock and a hard place. But I didn't feel I was alone. I always felt that there was a clear sense of purpose. It was like a mission. Did it over the course of your career, Leroy, in the Met? Did it get any? I'm going to use the word easier. I'm not sure that's the right word. Quote unquote, easier for you as you as you rose up through the ranks and became more respected, or did you feel that you became more respected? Did it become easier for you? Or was, it, or was there always that sense that you, that you were being made to feel that you didn't quite belong and you were some form of troublemaker and why were you there? Did that always stay with you or did it, did it get better? It always stayed with me. And in fact, it's still there. <laughs> Going by social media, some of the uh, retired officers or those who are under disguise uh, of Twitter or Instagram or whatever, they make it known that they're, they're not happy with me. I always got a sense that I was definitely a marked person, <laughs> not only because of the colour of my skin and, and my background or what... I, I made it clear what I stood for. I remember the work, first week in Hendon at the training school during the foundation course. I said, listen, I'm not here to make friends. I'm actually here to make a difference. 
And in those days, rumour control was as good as the internet, you know. <laughs> What's this one? is dodgy. So when I got to my first station in Islington, even though I, I knew the area, the people, I grew up there, I just felt that I had to rely more on the community than my colleagues because, again, my reputation had preceded me. I, I, I was quite outspoken even then. And I was I was a, a poster boy, let's say, for a recruiting campaign. So they thought, well, what makes you so different? I said, well, actually, I'm black, and there's not many black officers. They want to recruit more black people, you know. And uh, they made a big thing out of the science background. So I, I was always sensed I was on someone's target for one reason or another. And it gave me that sort of hypervigilance. Now, some people think, oh, gosh, how could you live like that? But I, I, I felt... It, it it, um, it took me out of my comfort zone, and I work better when I'm not too comfortable. If I'm too laid back and everything is fine, I'm thinking, hold on here. I've got this healthy scepticism saying, don't get too comfortable. It, it did become easier um, as I grew up the ranks. I was able to really build on the extra work I was doing in, in setting, up, setting up the Black Police Association and working to make changes for the better, to, to develop culture change. And, and a lot of that came through the McPherson inquiry. Yeah, I suppose there was respect, but it was grudging. It wasn't like they respected me because I'm such a great guy. So it got easier. But then again, I, I suppose I, I, I made so many changes through the Black Police Association and other initiatives that I, I sort of created change to make it easier, not only for me, but other black officers uh, of African, Caribbean and Asian origins and police staff members who also were going through difficult time in that hostile environment. You talked a little bit about the culture that you found there when you first joined the police. Uh, could you describe a little bit more about what that was and how that then reflected how people worked in the communities that they were serving? Well, I would, I would hear the casual racism, even even at Hendon during the foundation course, but even in the police station, you hear them talking the N-word and the P-word and the W-word. Very casually, it was all in just everyday language. And not directed at me, but other members of staff or to the public. And I, I, at times, had to stand up uh, and say, excuse me, don't use that language front of me I don't think it's appropriate so there was that I remember um, again at Islington my first station I had the n-word daubed on my locker and some of you might know from the small axe film that John Boyega played me that was a massive scene where he sees that on his locker and trying to find out who's done it and it was in a secure area where members of public cannot be and it doesn't get any sort of um, response and and that's what I found even when I reported it that someone's written that word on my locker and it can't be a member of the public and nothing happened you know there's no interviews no one came back to me to say well you've made a report and so it it, it was very it very clear to me that the, the culture is very hostile and toxic and and I used to hear about what officers did, you know, amongst themselves, you know, that 
showed me, as I said, they don't treat each other right, much less members of the public. And they don't really understand what being a public servant is to the wider pub, not only just to the majority culture, but also to the minority um, ethnic groups who were developing, you know, through the 80s and 90s and respecting people. So it, 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 there, there was that sense that the organisation tend to attract the wrong sort of people who are into a power trip. It was a power control. They want to impose their um, views on people. And, and it is a bit of a culture that seems to escalate things, not try and de-escalate. So you go into situations and officers want to be shown as they're in control, they're assertive, they've got the high ground, everyone do what you're told. Whereas I, 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 you know, obviously, if it's an emergency situation, sometimes you have to do that. But if you're going to a conversation with people, you know, to ascertain what's happened, an investigation or to prevent something from happening, you've got to go in at a level where you, you still p- treat people with respect and understand their view on things, how they view us as police officers and how we have to be um, respectful you know, it wasn't all about blue lights and sirens. It's around relationships. There used to be a group of young people that every time I would walk up Holloway Road from Islington Station, they would always call me names. And they used to call me Judas. And, and again, in the Small Lex film, there's an issue around uh, they're calling me, um, or calling John Boyega Judas. And he said, Officer Judas to you. And that actually happened. And that young man who used to call me that, um, I could have arrested him, but I never did. We was, in the end, it was just banter. And I remember um, having some really good conversation with him because I, I could identify with him because I grew up in the same area as he was growing up. We had a lot of commonalities, you know, both supported Arsenal. So we had conversations. And, and I lost touch with him for all sorts of reasons. But we, he reached out to me 30-odd years later when I was working on the Olympic security team. And... You know, he, he, we built that relationship up again. And, and for many years, up until last year, he was working with me uh, in terms of my charity I'd set up called Void Youth. And he, I called him in to be the CEO. And he, you know, we, we worked together. And, and, and it's in the book where that relationship means so much to me. Even now, I'm, I'm a patron still, but I still talk to him regularly and... Um, and if I'd arrested him 30-odd years later, he, we wouldn't be working together. We wouldn't be friends. We're close friends. Our families know each other. And we really value making that relationship stand the test of time. When it could have been, he was just another st- statistic. I, he was just another person I arrested, more resentful of police, and would have nothing to do with them. And in the end... He does a lot of work with police, and he, and he's very, very good at it. And 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 uh, his name's Paul Anderson, and and he, you know, he he, he is an opinion former and a strong advocate for change, similar to myself. So that that public service for me is it's really important. You know, it's not just a nine to five weekends off. That sense of advocacy and activism and public service is still with me now. You don't just switch it off. And I'm thinking, you know, just through seeing others as human like you uh, listening of that respect there's that that potential whereas 
you know, in the States right now, we're seeing a police officer who's on trial for uh, the murder of George Floyd, where it looks like the reverse was true. In, in other words, that situation that you alluded to, where it's very, very easy to go into a situation with a particular sort of mentality or machismo that 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 prevents all that sort of connection and that humanity to happen do you have any observations on 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 that you know that situation because it seems so different from what you're describing in your approach that um case of derek chauvin and what he did to george floyd made me so uh, i was shocked it brought tears to my eyes because it just shows how if if you're in a certain culture an operational culture where they don't have the checks and balances to not only spot officers who are capable of doing something like that, whether he's convicted of murder or not, just the fact that he had his knee on his neck when he was not even posing a risk. He was handcuffed, he was prone down, he had other officers there, there was no other threat from members of the public, even though they were animated and vocal. So everything was in control there. And just the fact that he had it in for a minute, or to be honest, even 15 seconds, anything above that is totally inappropriate, totally unnecessary and disproportionate. So to know that he has taken a similar oath to myself to protect and serve and the lack of checks and balances in his police department has not caught him before he's done that. Because those sort of things don't happen overnight. I'm sure they'll show his record at some stage, if not after the verdict, if it is a guilty verdict, that is, that he has got previous complaints. Because I, I, I remember when officers that I'm supervising, whether it's a sergeant or a superintendent, I would have to be very proactive and pick up the signs early with early intervention and tell us why is it every time when you stop someone there's a fight or there's some sort of complaint coming out of it whereas other officers do more stops do more arrests and they have no complaints no fights no volatility and it's the same area of policing so talk me through that so I try and put them on a development plan I try and get them to review and if if they don't review and change and move on and improve then I may have to sanction them and that could be from you know take them off operational duties or even making it known that it could have a cost implication uh, and, and formal regulation might stop him from him or her invariably it was a him very really her that they can't go for promotion so there's so many things you can do. So the checks and balances is really important, but it just shows what it, when you get into an any sort of culture where it's isolated, it can go into an extreme sense of operating, extreme sense of viewing other people. And if, if you join policing as a power trip, and all of a sudden the power can go to your head. And you see that with Derek Chauvin. The power he felt, he had his knee on George Floyd's neck, he had his hands in his pockets, he even had his sunglasses on his forehead. You could, you know, if you just 
ch you know you can change backdrops now you might as well put the beach he's just on the beach with palm trees you know he was that relaxed about it there was no sense of not just apprehension or concern it was like it was just another day in the office you know it was just another call I knew, I knew that it was going to have massive implications. Uh, I suppose that's what drove me to joining the Black Lives Matter march in, in June of last year, shortly after that. And I, I sensed that I had to be in solidarity and, and be there to say, yes, this means a lot to me as a public servant, as an ex-police officer, because it's... It's clear that the culture, and it's not just indicative of the US police departments, but also over here, that the culture has shifted to an extreme that they, they don't value life as they should. They don't value the relationships as they should as public servants, really true public servants. And we need to check that. That comes back to the, the, the question about McPherson and, and the Black Police Association and what we saw, how we saw the improvements in the police culture, internally and externally, because you had recommendations that were being monitored, they're being, because what gets measured gets done, and we could see how changes were really tangible and we thought irreversible, but unfortunately has slipped over the last 10 years with austerity and Brexit and the right-wing shift I've already spoken about. But if we can go back to strong recommendations independent oversight of the Stephen Lawrence Steering Group or their equivalent and really get back to the importance of citizen-focused policing and what that really means. You know, Sir Robert Peel, when he started the Met Police in 1829, he said something very profound. The police are the public and the public are the police. There's a contract. And I think officers really need to understand that contract needs to be enshrined in everything they do. You talked a little bit there about how you feel like there was progress made and a large part in, in the organisations that you were involved with and were leading, like the Black Police Association. But now you you feel like it's almost gone back 10 years and you named a few reasons why you thought that was. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? The McPherson Inquiry was a watershed in terms of not, not only saying that the police service was institutionally racist, which... Myself and uh, two of my colleagues said when we gave written and oral submission to the, the McPherson Inquiry. But it was also about understanding the importance of a reflective organisation and what that actually means. And not, not just about numbers, but it's also about influence and how officers of different backgrounds can actually influence the organisation, you know, that sort of... Um, on-the-job training, knowing about more cultures, more uh, viewpoints and beliefs and experiences. And it has an operational imperative. And i give an example. When, when I was involved in the Damalola Taylor investigation and I was uh, called upon to bring in a cadre of officers that looked like the community. Most of them were of West African descent, Nigerians, Ghanaians, very similar sort of backgrounds. And I brought in officers who had that shared and common experience with them. And it helped in <clears throat> building those relationships, getting in information, identifying suspects, which eventually led to the conviction of the suspects. 
so there's a human, moral, and a business case towards a reflective organisation. And that, for me, was starting to show so much breakthroughs. And I think it's because the commissioner and other chief constables around the country were being asked very critical questions around internal diversity, the reflective organisation that they, they were looking towards achieving. Again, McPherson showed that there's an inextricable link between the internal police dynamics and how you treat your diverse personnel and how it makes you as a police service more effective in serving the needs of a diverse community. And again, that was being looked at and improving because there was the independent oversight of the Stephen Lawrence Steering Group, chaired by Jack Straw, who was very clear on how you measure and monitor progress and asking the same sort of questions on diversity as um, a supervisor be asked about their robberies and burglaries and murders and etc. So it's, it was given that sort of rigour, diversity, uh, reflective organisation and everything that goes with it was being rigorously looked at. And, and we saw improvements from 2000 and sorry, 1999, when the, uh, the report was published in that February, to 2009. And when you had the Home Secretary, like Jack Straw, who started it off, and subsequent Home Secretaries for that 10-year period, having that role of independent oversight, there was that political will to hold Chief Constable account. Now we had a change of government in 2010, and that's continued over the last 11 years, and it's clear that they have a totally different emphasis. Well, big issue was austerity, lost so many officers, and especially citizens' focus officers to build relationships with the community. And then the race and equality agenda was literally knocked off the agenda. In fact, it's out the, com- it's out the meeting room. It's not really an issue as it used to be. And there's, not, there's no political will to keep that focus and and that's why you've now got this disconnect where police officers are not they haven't got that relationship with the with certain elements of the public i'm not saying all but trust and confidence in in black communities are the lowest it's been in 20 years so in a sense in answer to your question i feel it's like 10 steps forward and 10 steps back and i don't say that lightly they really uh, I, I say it with a heavy heart that police the look and feel of policing reminds me of a pre-McPherson era. That reminded me of what used to take place in the 70s and 80s, um, which saddens me, and, and it shouldn't be the case. How did it come about that Steve McQueen then approached you, or how did you get to hear about the fact that Steve McQueen might want to use the story of your life as one of his small axe films? What was that like for you um, to see, you know, not just you telling your story through a book, but then also um, a film under, you know, an, an amazing director coming to, you know, national TV that would tell that story as well and, and a superstar in the lead as well. How how was that experience for you? An absolutely amazing experience. I mean, how it came about was in uh, 2015, a journalist who used to work for the BBC, she was now freelance, her name is Helen Bart. Helen approached me and said, listen, one of the best directors in the world uh, is looking at 
um, stories around police officers in the 60s, 70s and 80s and they, they would, I would like to record your story and put it forward and it's a number of officers will be recorded. In the early 2016, she contacts me and she says, um, well, actually, your, your story's been chosen by this office, this director, rather. And, and I said, uh, who is this person? She said, Steve McQueen. I said, Steve McQueen of 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen. She said, yes. And I thought, oh, amazing. I just couldn't believe it. When I met Steve McQueen and... And we got on really well from the first meeting. And a series of meetings to do with the script. And he, he wanted my my input on so many things around the script and the emphasis. But one of the conversations I had with Steve McQueen was... Um, it wasn't in a script writing room in, in Holborn. It was, um, it was in a restaurant just around the corner from the tube station. And um, we were in this restaurant and Steve said to me, Listen, I can't believe it. You say you loved your father. But this, knowing that he'd been beaten up by police officers and you still went ahead and joined the ranks of those officers that beat him up, how can you say you loved him? How can you say you really respected him? And he was getting really animated in this restaurant. He's very laser-like. He, 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 like, he, he looks into your soul. He needs to know what it is, what's in there that he's not getting. And then, and, and as I said, I don't, I, don't, I don't have my faith in on my sleeve and everything that I do. But he said, how could you stick in there? How could you go against your father? And you say it's your worst nightmare and you still continued and you turn your back on side. And I said, well, I suppose it's my faith. He said, well, why didn't you tell me that before? <laughs> and, um, and, and I remember that, that conversation and, and, met, and, and I thought, wow. And then he started to emphasize about my relationship with my father. And that's when it clicked, it clicked. I thought, wow. That's what I need to do with the book. It's a spiritual journey. And that relationship with my father, it, it was such a surreal, cathartic experience. It still is. Oh, it was, a, it was a form of validation and a form of restoration on so many things and being going through this experience where you would never think in your, in your mid-60s you'll get this <laughs> opportunity. And then, of course, John Boyega gets the, um, the Golden Globe Award um, a few weeks ago and the Critics' Choice Award and... Yeah, so that, 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 it's just been an absolute amazing experience. I, I feel very humbled. I feel the Lord has been so good, and, and, and I feel energized. I feel 17 again, even though I might not look it with this corona growth uh, and my corona growth around my <laughs> midriff, but <laughs> I feel like I'm in it. Spiritually and psychologically, despite COVID, I, I feel 17 again. So, you know, give God thanks for that. Amazing. What's amazing is it's almost like all of your life's work, especially in the force, has been given a second life. It's been given a second go at making all those changes again. It's kind of been brought back into, yeah, given a second life. I think that's the best way that I can describe it. Yeah. In fact, I'm sure some people are really upset about that because, you know, they're thinking, why would this guy go away, you know? I'm sure the mayor and, and the commissioner are thinking, why doesn't this guy just go away and disappear <laughs> under a rock somewhere? <laughs> and, but that, and it's got, you know, I, I couldn't map this out myself. You know, there's a divine intervention there. I, you know, I, I'd like to think I can knock out the strategy if I need to, but this is beyond my wildest dreams. I, I've got to capitalise on this time 
to make changes for better. And I'm not just thinking about, oh, it's just sales of the book or how many times people look at the film on Amazon Prime or iPlayer. It's around what are the conversations we're having around it and how is it timely with this Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd case and even this recent um, report, uh, this Commission on Racial Equality and disparities, or cred, or I call it zero cred, actually, uh, report by Tony Sewell, and how it's really created so much outrage, um, especially in the black community, and how it, 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 again, these conversations are not just going away. So the timeliness of the book and the film, I, I really believe it, it's good to be relevant, uh, it's good to be current, and uh, I, as long as I have that and I'm carrying out the purpose that the Lord wants me to do, then I will continue to do it. And, you know, if I've got health and strength and the desire and, and, and commitment, and as I said, it's public service as far as I'm concerned. I'm not just doing it just for the sake of oh, it's self-aggrandizement or making me massaging my ego. Um, I, I'm doing it because it, it's the purpose that the Lord's given me 30-odd years ago. I'm just really just carrying it out. It's public service is activism and advocacy, especially for those who don't have a voice and need to be heard. Mm. Do you have any feelings about the the, the proposed legislation that's um, before Parliament now around, you know, that's going to change our rights to protest? And, you know, there's been a lot of um, public uh, gatherings to say, hold on a minute here, what's going on here? Um, and I think some green belters might feel concerned that almost under the cover of the pandemic you know when we do recognize that 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 is a public emergency things might be going through that might be a little bit detrimental to our democratic rights and our freedoms and i don't know if you have any it's not a very easy or a quick question but i know that someone at Greenbelt might ask you that so i wonder if we could close with asking you if you have any reflections on that leroy well i think it's extremely important to have the right to protest peacefully and despite covid people have gone out the way to do that which shows the strength of feeling it, i myself went to the black lives matter march because i wanted to show the importance of this and police really need to get this right because it, we saw from the sarah everard um vigil how they can get it horribly wrong um, in the name of COVID. Now, I understand that certain people may have hijacked that vigil, but just the optics of just strong-handed strong policing, heavy-handed policing, how it's taken the focus off what that vigil is all about. And it sort of reinforced people's perceptions about police. It's, it's really about power and control, and not relationships. Police legitimacy is based on the cornerstone of trust. If people don't trust you, they're going to work with you. They're going to tell you what's happening. If they want to have peaceful post-protests and they trust you, they will work with you. I, I, I used to do a lot of um, protest in, West, in central London when I was based in Westminster during the early O's. And I must admit... I. If you really know the importance of what the issues are and you're working with that organising group to say, right, this is how we can be a win-win and 
understand the risks and the rewards and how we can reduce conflict. And I think it's really important that police really have their inventory of why they want this extra um, powers. The politicians need to understand if they give these powers, are they going to have the political will to hold the police service to account with the necessary checks and balances? And, of course, it has to be with the cooperation of the public. As I said, the cornerstone of police legitimacy is trust and confidence. People need to trust you. And at the moment, trust is the lowest it's been for black communities, for women. It's not a question of just more power for police. It's more relationship. Because there is a disconnect between police and certain communities. Trust is critical. And we need to focus more on that than just giving police powers. Because they can't arrest their way out of the problem. They can't stop and search their way out of the problem. They have got to work with communities so that they, they solve this issue together. It can't be uh, a just uh, accelerating it um, up to a level where they alienate communities. And we've got a police force... Uh, and a not police service. Police force and not a police service. I, I, that's that's a wonderful sentence to yeah. end on, I think. Yeah. So that was an amazing, amazing conversation with, with Leroy. Um, so much to get into there. What I thought was really interesting... Uh, is that his career wasn't just full of successes. It was full of successes and then it was full of backlash from those successes. You know, I hope that when I have finished the main work of my life, I'm able to still, you know, fight the good fight or, you know, be involved in stuff that that matters. Um, I thought it was a really good example to us all in a way. Yeah. And because he talks about, you know, how, how he was really put trust in his faith... To, to take all those steps when everything around him was probably telling him it was the wrong thing to do. He was just guided by his faith and how there's, that's still being shown to have been the right decision now. I think he uses the phrase, doesn't he, at one stage, there was a calling and he still feels that calling. It's his vocation to speak out, to be a servant, to love people to you know advocate for the people who haven't got a voice that's his calling and he's he's not giving up on it one thing that didn't make the cut is he told us this story about when he was investigated over a long time by the met police for i think it was like such a small amount of money that they were worried about 80 80 pounds he got yeah he got a hearing to say that he defrauded the home office out of 80 pounds he hasn't it hasn't been all plain sailing it's been up and down and he has been the subject of a lot of scrutiny and attention because people just viewed him as a bit of a troublemaker and yeah this case i mean it even went to the the courts doesn't it i think the met police took him to court about this 80 pounds um which turned out to be a completely legitimate um expense yeah and it and better than that so this happened when he just achieved a promotion to be chief inspector and then this investigation happened and he was handed a disciplinary notice to say that he defrauded the Home Office out of £80. And then he went to court and his defence team was led by Sadiq Khan, who then went on to be the mayor. And it was found that he was 
owed £600 in unclaimed expenses. So not only did he not owe £80, but he had £600 in unclaimed expenses. And so they were like, oh, no, there's no case anymore. And he went, well, there is a case now. (laughs) And so he brought, I think he brought a case to them about like how this had all been dealt with and stuff. And, And yeah. That's what I mean about that kind of wave. Every time he achieved something brilliant, there was a backlash. Right at the beginning of the conversation, he talked to us, didn't he, about that experience of going back to Jamaica when he was in primary school to live for a few years. That seems to have been something that was really, really important to him. He talks about the fact that it's because he saw black, police officers he saw black government officials black doctors he's you know that he wasn't seeing when he was at primary school in the uk and how when you see something like that you know you can achieve it and i've always thought that was so powerful you know just from my experience of growing up a woman like when you see people achieving stuff that look like you you know that it is achievable for you if you can see it you can be it yeah he described it as, as a masterclass in, in identity. We think about it when we're programming the festival, just who we put on stage. Like, you know, trying to put great role models on stage and trying to put people on stage that, you know, different members of our audience can relate to and can be inspired by. How sad is it that, like, do you realise how much that wouldn't have happened for him back in primary school in, in the UK? Yeah, I was really struck that, you know, he gave evidence and reported to the Macpherson uh, inquiry in the mid to late 90s. And then the Macpherson report came out in 1999. And he talked quite a bit to us about the way that then throughout the the noughties, um, from 2000 up until, you know, 2010, there was a really marked change in policing in the country because um, police forces up and down the country were being asked to report in slightly different ways. They were being asked to um, not only make strides to reflect, better reflect the communities that they served, but also to reflect on their own practice. So that the two forms of reflecting, they, they wanted to model a, a, a police uh, body that actually looked like the community that they were policing. But also they wanted to actually do the work and do the thinking about what it was they were doing, why and how. And um, Leroy was saying what strides they made over that decade. And and sadly, he was very honest and he said it felt like it had just all gone into reverse gear um, since 2010, 2011, austerity. It, he, he, he felt like all of that good work had been undone. I found that a little bit heartbreaking, I have to admit. Yeah, and that race, the race and equality agenda just got completely dropped what do you think of the kind of people that are attracted to the police force because he because um leroy mentioned a little bit about how the organization attracts people can attract people on a power trip i know that not everybody in the police force is like that but i can definitely see there's some truth in there yeah i guess it's going to attract some people for the wrong reasons because at the end of the day you have got the opportunity to exert quite a lot of control over other people and over situations um and Leroy seemed to suggest that 
there have been periods in the police where that's been the dominant sort of culture is attracting people who want to do the control and subdue thing a lot more than the listen and serve thing. I think the point he was making when we were asking him about Derek Chauvin, he was saying, look, that won't have happened out of the blue. That won't have just happened on that day. It doesn't work like that. These things happen over years and years and they're a way that you behave um i was i was quite struck by that we've got a piece of legislation going through parliament and the house of lords at the moment having various hearings and readings called the police crime sentencing and courts bill and there's been quite a lot of protests around the country about that hasn't there catherine so i think the main things that people are concerned about is that it will put noise limits on protests and it will put um it will expand stop and stop and search powers of the police which we know are discriminatory against uh, minority communities um and it includes an offense of intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance so basically it's trying to really stop and criminalise the way that you can exert your right to protest. Um, and it's crazy because the the, pro, the idea behind protesting is that they're supposed to, it's supposed to be disruptive. That's, that's the whole point. And that's where change has been made through history is when people are standing up for their rights and being disruptive and people start taking notice. I, I can see why even during the pandemic there were large demonstrations in a lot of cities up and down the country because something feels a little bit not right um and i think we asked leroy didn't we and he said he said you've got to ask yourself why why do you want those powers what what are they for why do you need those powers because you can't arrest your way out of situations you can't stop and search your way out of situations you've got to listen and understand and serve and then a difference can be made i thought he was really powerful on that anyway who have we got up next week on the podcast Catherine? next week we have uh, sister Teresa focardas who Ooh. i think is is one of my favorites from this series she's an icon for me now she's one of those inspirational women in my life that i'm always going to go yeah, I'm going to look up to you. But she's got lots of interesting things to say. Some of them are quite quite controversial uh, in, a, in a good way. Um, she's certainly not someone who's just up for a quiet life and um, keeping quiet about things. She has things to say. So we really urge you to t tune in next week. Um, should be a great conversation. <laughs> So if you want to keep in touch with us, please write in and tell us your thoughts on this episode or answer any of the questions that we've asked you on the episode. And you can do that using our email address, which is stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. And if you want to sign up to any general festival news about Greenbelt Festival so we can let you know about how things are going, you can sign up to our dispatches email newsletter on our website. Out and about on socials, we are at Greenbelt on Twitter and at Greenbelt Festival on Instagram and Facebook. So please let us know what you're thinking on your platform of choice. Thank you to Daisy Ware Jarrett in the office for producing us and Paul Truman for helping us frame the episode. 
and to Josh and Jake on our volunteer recorded talks team who do all the polishing and make us sound half decent before we release this. They're wonderful. 